0: Well, good morning. It's great to see you. Thank you for joining us here on our online service. I'm really excited about our passage this morning because it talks about a topic that is one that I highly value, one that I kind of grew up experiencing, one that was really championed in uh, my home, especially by my grandparents. The the value I'm thinking about, the, the theme that really is highlighted in this section of John chapter 9, is the idea of curiosity. Of curiosity, so, so let me ask you two questions, kind of in the frame of the value of curiosity. The, the first question is this: How honest is your curiosity? How honest is your curiosity? The second question I want to ask is: How hospitable are you to the curiosity of others? Let, let me unpack what I mean by that. First one: How honest? is your curiosity. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, When you see something new, when you see something different, when an idea comes uh, across your radar, how do you respond? Well, when you start to look into it, when you start to investigate something you don't necessarily agree with at first, what's your your first reaction? Uh, Is it defensive? Do you kind of put up the guard, put up the dukes, and you just try to block any point that you don't like? is your first response to just kind of scour the internet and find all of the opinions that agree with you. Are you being honest in your curiosity? Are you being fair in your examination? Are you treating ideas with the integrity that they should be heard before they should be judged? Kind of like due process for people. Due process means we are innocent until proven guilty. Is that the same way you treat ideas? That ideas should be heard before they should be judged? Do you seek to understand people before you try to be understood? Do you try to hear both sides of the story? I think all of us would would want to believe and aspire to the fact that we are very honest in our curiosity, Uh, that we are not biased in our investigation, that we don't make a judgment before we start an investigation. That we look into things fairly, without bias. We look into things objectively. We want to be honest in our curiosity. What about the second question? How hospitable are you to others' curiosity? How patient are you with the doubts of others? How patient are you with the questions of others? Uh, Do you invite examination? Do you invite investigation? Do people feel safe being vulnerable with you about... Spiritual things or political things, or really about any discussion? Or do they feel you're more closed off and you're just going to push back and give a counterpoint instead of trying to understand what they're coming from and what they're trying to say? I think Jesus values curiosity. And I think in our passage this morning, John the Gospel writer, as we kind of unpack what's happened after the miracle of the man who was born blind being healed, what I think he's going to try to prove to us is that we, or show to us, is that we must value curiosity. We must be honest in our curiosity. We must be hospitable to curiosity because when we aren't honest in our curiosity and hospitable to the curiosity of others, we don't allow for fair conclusions to be drawn. We ruin the investigation before it ever starts. And we'll never really get to truth. Here's what we're going to see in our passage this morning in John chapter 9. Is we're going to see two groups. Two groups that respond to something that Jesus does that's very controversial. Jesus heals a man born blind on the Sabbath. And this creates a big controversy. And there's kind of a a split, if you will. That two groups are going to start an investigation. Two groups are going to be curious. But one investigation is going to be fair. And the other one is going to be unfair. And their conclusions are going to be very different. And we're going to see the danger of having an unfair investigation, a biased examination, not being honest in our curiosity, that it's going to lead to a conclusion that's not the truth, but something else. So let me show you. Let's jump right into our passage in John chapter 9. John chapter 9. And before we get into the first verse, let me try to summarize this message for you. We like to summarize our messages with one big idea. One big idea. That's kind of a a small sentence that you can take with you uh, for the rest of the week. So if you're going to write down one thing, I want you to write this down. If you're going to take one note on your phone, take down this sentence. This is the big idea for this morning. I think the main idea of our passage from the Gospel of John. The big idea is this. Curiosity seeks truth, not an echo. Curiosity seeks truth, not echoes. Now, what do I mean by that? Curiosity uh, seeks truth. It, it seeks out a process to find truth. This is what true and honest curiosity does. Curiosity starts an investigation. And an investigation is a process towards truth. It looks into the facts. It's okay with having to make maybe some adjustments on its own opinions. It's, it's, it's okay to have to learn a little bit. It's okay to have to progress a little bit. It's okay to be growing in something. When a new idea comes, it should be investigated. Now, maybe you don't change the position that you had before, but you approach the process in a very honest way, and you seek to hear an idea before you judge an idea. You seek to understand a person before your position is ever understood by them. You're a good listener. You're a good investigator. You could say you're even a good detective. Now, on the other hand, curiosity does not seek an echo. An echo, what do I mean by that? Why did I choose that word in our big idea? This is what an echo is an echo is very different than an examination. In an examination or investigation, you're seeking out truth. An echo is a different kind of process. An echo is something that starts with you and comes back with everything that you first started with. An echo is when you say something and it rebounds back and everything you said is what you get back. This is not what curiosity, or true curiosity, curiosity that Jesus Christ would value. This is not how it acts. An echo only leaves you where you started. Echo is not a true in examination. It is a bias examination. It's a bias process. You're looking only to prove your opinion and not to seek truth. Let me show you how these kind of two kind of currents work through our passage. Again, what we're going to unpack is Jesus just healed a man who's been born blind. He heals this man, and he heals this man on the Sabbath. And what happens is an investigation breaks out. And two people are going to try to find, or two groups are going to try to find the truth. One is going to be fair in their examination, and the other is not. Let me show you this kind of contrast, and I think you'll see the one we should model ourselves after. This is John chapter 9. We're starting in verse 13. It says this, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now what's going on here? The they in this passage is the neighbors of the man who was born blind. They're looking at him and they're seeing that he has now received sight. They know he was born blind. He was a beggar in their town. They were very familiar with him. And now they're saying to themselves, what is going on here? We need to get some expert opinion." This is a significant event, this miraculous healing, so we need to bring it to, it says, the Pharisees. They're not trying to get this guy in trouble. They're, the Pharisees were the religious experts of the day. So this event just happened, which looks like it has some religious undertones to it, right? it, has some religious significance to it, so they need to know, what do we do with this? I mean, this is very much like us. When when a significant event happens, and, and maybe millions of people see this, say, they say it's an international event, we wait. We wait to see political leaders give us an opinion. We wait to see governments kind of speak out on how they're viewing this certain uh, tragedy or phenomenon. We look for people's opinions. We, we want kind of the truth to be validated or clarified for us. This is exactly what these guys are doing. They're like, we got to bring this guy to the Pharisees. Now, they don't know this guy is not going to be treated very fairly. They're just looking for some clarification. How should we view this? Again, we have a man born blind, now healed. And this is where the investigation starts. It starts for that first group. We'll get to the second group, or he's actually an individual. But this is the first group and their investigation is not going to be very fair. Let me show you how this started. I'll read verse 13 to 14 so we get the flow of the passage. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath. That is very significant, and we'll see that later. It was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him, How he had received his sight. And he said, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed and I saw. Now, let's just stop here. Something very interesting is happening here. And we can miss it if we read too fast. But notice the question that was asked. These religious experts are now seeing a man who is claimed to have been blind from birth and to have been healed. At least that's what the group is saying who has brought them before this group. And what question does the religious leaders, the Pharisees, ask? What's their first question? Their first question is a how question. Look down at the passage again. Look down at verse 15. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. Now that seems like not a surprising question. But we have to see what's being asked here and what's not being asked here. They didn't ask, did this happen? They asked, how did this happen? Now that may not seem very shocking of a difference to you, but I think that's because as, as, as modern people, right, in the modern world, we are dominated by a naturalistic worldview. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that we are dominated with the thinking that, that everything can be explained within the universe, within nature, with, within this box that we exist in. That everything can be explained by a natural cause and effect that nothing can intrude inside this system of nature that we have. Now, that's not the worldview here. See, for a naturalist, the question would be, did this really happen? Did a miracle actually occur? How can this be explained? So we would ask, did this happen? You see, but the Pharisees don't ask that, and this is incredibly significant. They ask, how did it happen? And why is that? Because the Pharisees are operating on a supernatural worldview. They don't view the world in a naturalistic way. They do believe in nature, yes, but they also believe in something outside of the created system of nature. Something outside of this natural cause and effect system. They believe that God can intervene, can intrude and interrupt and disturb natural cause and effect. God can perform miracle. Miracles are possible. So to them, two questions are very important. One, not only did it happen, but how did it happen? Why is that important to them? It's important to them because even if you prove a miracle happened, that doesn't mean it was from God. Just because something supernatural happened, something that cannot be Explain in the naturalistic way of natural causes and effects, if we know that something has, has intervened and disturbed the natural order, disrupted the natural order, changed things, adjusted things, if we know there's some intervention outside of our natural world, it doesn't mean that it's of God. Because there are other supernatural powers out there. Those are supernatural beings who can give people power to perform supernatural works, miraculous works. So, to the Pharisees, there's almost a test that has to be done. Again, to the naturalists, the test is did a miracle occur? For these guys, for the supernaturalists, they would say, yes, let's start there. Did it occur? But then they're going to ask the question, but how did it occur? Because we need to determine, is this thing of God or of something else? Is this something that we should honor? Is this something we should listen to? Is this something we should learn from? Or is this something that we should avoid? Let me show you how this is exactly what they should be doing. An investigation is very appropriate. Even assuming if Jesus actually performed this wonderful miracle... They're supposed to investigate. They're supposed to test. They're supposed to be curious. This is what the great Moses instructed them to do. Let me show you this in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 13. This is Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses, or starting with verse 1. Listen to this. He says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder... Very significant terms, a sign or a wonder. These are the same words used to describe the supernatural feats of Jesus. The works of Jesus, the miraculous works of Jesus are described with the terms signs and wonders. Now listen what he says. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder that he tells you comes to pass, what does it say there? He performed a supernatural thing. He performed a miracle. What does that mean we should trust him? Does that mean this is of God? Look at what he says. And if he says to you, let us go after other gods which we have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. What is Moses saying there? Miracles can be misleading miracle workers can be misleading you have to put them to the test jesus christ would say the same thing jesus christ would warn that at the day of judgment people would come before him as he is the judge and they would say to jesus look we've done all these miraculous things And Jesus does not deny that they have done those things. But what he does deny is that he does not know them. Meaning, we're not in a relationship. You're not a true follower. What does that passage reveal to us? It reveals to us that in Jesus' mind, there is a category of people who can perform supernatural works and not be following him. This is why the how question was so incredibly important for the Pharisees to have answered. They needed to know this. Just because a miracle happened doesn't mean that they need to follow this guy who performed the miracle. There may be something else behind this. Let me show you one more passage just to kind of show this. In 2 Thessalonians 2, or sorry, chapter 2, verse 8. Look at this. This really brings some clarity that just because a miracle is done doesn't mean that God is in the midst of that. There could be another power working to make that miracle occur. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. It says, And then when the lawless one, or this would be the Antichrist, Paul uses the term the lawless one, or the man of lawlessness, and then when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus, oh, sorry, verse 9. Well, we'll read verse 8 because it's, Really cool. Whom the Lord will kill with the breath of his mouth, so Christ will defeat the man of lawlessness, and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by, listen to this, the activity of Satan with all power, false signs, and wonders. Now we have three terms, power, signs, and wonders. Again, those three terms are used in the New Testament to describe the works of Jesus Christ himself. Now, there's a big difference between what Jesus does and what this man of lawlessness does. This man of lawlessness performs miracles, signs, and wonders. How does he do it? He does it by the power of Satan. Moses, the one who told him to test anybody who does anything miraculous, knew this himself experientially. When he was going to Pharaoh, seeking to have his Jewish brothers delivered from the bonds of slavery... He went before Pharaoh and showed off the power that validated his position as a spokesman for God. And one of those times, his brother Aaron threw down his staff. And when he threw down his staff, it turned into a snake. But then Pharaoh brought his magicians, and they did the same exact work. How did they do that? Again, just because something supernatural happens does not mean it's of God. It must be tested. So right now we got to applaud these guys. They're doing exactly what Moses instructed. They're doing exactly what Jesus would want them to do. Their curiosity seems good so far. Their investigation feels good so far. They should examine the evidence and then come to a conclusion. But let me tell you, their investigation is going to be spoiled right from the get-go. Look at how these guys go about their process. Go back to John chapter 9, we're in verse 15. So the Pharisees again asked him, how? How? We need to test and see if you're going to mislead us with this miracle. Or we should follow. How have you received your sight? And he said, he put mud on my eyes. I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who was a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So here's the response. Jesus says, now, healed this man on the Sabbath, and this has caused uh, controversy. And now we have this kind of break within this group that should be investigating this miracle. And one group says, no, he's not of God. Right away. Before they ever do any more questioning, any more examining, any more investigation, they've already come to their conclusion like that. Now, why did they arrive at their conclusion? They do have some reasoning behind it. What do they say? Well, they say this man breaks the Sabbath. And what do I mean by that? Well, the Sabbath was set up in the Old Testament. It was set up in the Old Testament by God. It's part of the Ten Commandments. God commanded his people to rest, to take a break. He wanted them to not do the work that they normally did the other six days of the week. Basically, he said, I don't want you to do your job. Maybe that's a modern way to use the term. I don't want you to do your job every day of the week. No, you got to have a day off. Take a day off. Take Saturday off. That's what he's saying here. Now, here's what the Pharisees did. They took that idea of work and they went beyond what the Scripture said beyond the idea of you need a break from your work, your career, your job, your profession, that's what it was meant to be, they took it and said, no, work is, means so much more than that. And so they established 39 different categories of work that could not be done on the Sabbath or you are a lawbreaker. And Jesus broke one of those 39 categories. Jesus actually did not break the Sabbath, not as the Old Testament would describe it, but according to their opinion that developed from biblical scripture, their kind of interpretation and, and expanded application, that's what Jesus was breaking. See, because one of those categories of work that you cannot do on the Sabbath is to knead, like kneading dough. How did Jesus do that? Jesus took spit, spit, and dirt, put them together, and made mud, then used that mud to anoint the eyes of the man who was born blind, and then told him to wash. So Jesus, putting saliva and dirt together, was kneading it into mud. And because he did that, he can't be of God. He might be a miracle worker, but he can't be of God. Now think about that for a moment. Are these guys really honest in their curiosity? Or is their investigation a little biased? Is it really objective? Are they being fair? Are they really hearing things out? or Have they already determined that Jesus is guilty before they even, even hear how he is innocent? Is this case really strong? They're basing everything off of their interpretation and expanded application. It's not actually a scriptural argument, a biblical argument. They're not willing to budge on their interpretation. They're not willing to learn. They're not willing to make an adjustment. And that shows that they're not being honest in their curiosity. Now there's another man I said who's going to show a, a much more honest curiosity. And this is the man who was blind and then healed. He comes into the picture. Let me show you this in verse 17. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. Now, we're going to get a lot more from this blind man, and we're really going to see kind of how he builds his investigation. We only get a little picture here of what's going on with him, and we'll get a little bit more later, but at the very end, we'll get a lot. But here, let's just stop here and see. This man, again, didn't see Jesus. He was blind, and then mud was put on his eyes. He was told to wash, and that's when he received his sight. So he's never seen Jesus, but he has been changed by Jesus, And so in his opinion right now, he says, well, I think Jesus has to be a prophet. Now, as followers of Jesus Christ, we would say yes to that. Good job. But we would say, you need to give us a little bit more. Jesus is not just a prophet. He's the Son of God. He is divine. He is all-powerful. He's the Savior of the world. So he doesn't give us a full answer yet. Again, this guy is in a process. He knows Jesus has to be significant. He has to be a prophet because he's performed this miraculous work. Well, let's look as the investigation goes on further, and we'll see, again, how the Pharisees are not being fair. Now, again, there was a group of them who said maybe this man is not a sinner because how does he perform such signs? There was a division among them. So it seems like maybe some of them are being a little more honest. Sad to say, the next verse will show us no. No. They may have been honest for a moment, but that moment passed. Because when John describes the Pharisees, now he's going to use one term. He's not going to describe two groups. This other group that maybe was teetering on the fence a little bit, no more. They're now with the other group. They are united. They're in unity. And in that unity, they are biased against Jesus. Look at this in verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been born blind. So now they just threw out the whole thing. It never happened. We don't have to ask the how question, even the question of it occurring. Nope, we don't have to. But look at this the Jews did not believe. That he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received sight. What does that mean? John clues us in here that they're going to examine the parents. They're going to ask the questions. And then it says they didn't believe it occurred until they called the parents. What does that mean? Now it's undeniable. Clearly, it happened. It happened. So now that that question's off the table, it did occur. There's still that other question. What's that question? The how question. And this becomes the main thing that the Pharisees keep pressing to the forefront. They'll ask the how question three times. They ask it first to the man, and they're going to ask it second to his parents. And then again, when they examine the man for a second time, they ask him the how question again. Because now they want to prove that Jesus didn't perform this miracle in a godly way. Therefore, he's not of God. He doesn't pass the test of Deuteronomy chapter 13. He broke the Sabbath. See? See, he's contradicting the teachings that we already hold. He's not passing the teaching test. We're not supposed to listen to a miracle worker if he teaches something different. And if he performs a sign or a wonder or does a miraculous thing in a way that's different than what we're taught, we're not supposed to listen That's their whole argumentation. So they now turn all of their energy towards the how question. We can prove that Jesus didn't do this miracle correctly, therefore he's not of God. And so they start to investigate the parents. And look at this. You'll see, the parents know. They know the how question is the most dangerous question because they're going to be asked several questions and they'll answer all of them except the how question. Because they know it's not just about did a miracle occur, it's about how a miracle occurred. And they won't touch that question. And look at why they won't touch that, touch that question. Let's look at what they say. It says in verse 18, "...and the Jews did not believe that, they had been, that he had been blind and had received his sight, until they called the parents and the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son?" Who you say was born blind, and how, there's that question, does he now see? And the parents answered, we know that he is our son, and that he was born blind. Again, they answer the two questions. Yes, that's our boy. Yes, he was born blind. And that seems significant. But watch how they handle the how question. Verse 21. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. They pass the buck. No, ask him. And why do they do that? Look at this. Because they're being intimidated. These witnesses are being intimidated. John reveals to us what's going on, verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone would confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. They're afraid. They're afraid if they answer the question of how it happened, that a Sabbath breaker is the one who did the miracle, that they're going to be in trouble. And that they may be kicked out of the synagogue, which is probably very significant for this group here for these parents. Their son is a beggar, which probably implies that the family is poor because they could not take care of their boy who had this ailment from birth. So they're probably already poor, and now if they're kicked out of the community, if they're blackballed, if they're put out of the community, marked as ones who are betraying the Jewish faith... How are they going to have commerce? How are they going to be able to generate an income? Now they might be financially in danger here. And so now what do we have? This is not an true investigation, an examination. They are intimidating these witnesses. They're acting like the mob is what they're doing. This isn't a fair trial. They already have their position. The Pharisees already have their position. They're not being honest in their curiosity. They've already established the idea Jesus is guilty before they ever examine all the evidence. They're not being fair. They're looking for an echo. They've already made up their mind and the process that they have is one where they want to hear back everything they've already started saying. That's what they're doing. It shows itself again. Look at verse 24. So for the second time they called the man. Who had been blind and said to him, "Give glory to God." Now, what are they doing here? They're not asking him to sing. Right? give glory to God. Praise God. They're not saying, "Hey, will you start a song for us in the middle of this courtroom, right in the middle of our investigation?" What they're doing is something very similar to what happens in the book of Joshua. A man sinned, committed a great sin, and he's about to be punished. And Joshua tells him, "Give glory to God. Just admit." your sin before your judge that's what they're saying here just admit it tell us the truth get everything out confess your sin give glory to god now listen to this we know that this man is a sinner really you know that already you've already come to that conclusion you already have enough evidence to prove that jesus is a sinner what do these pharisees know so far What does this group know so far? All they know, what? In this present case, all they know is that Jesus healed this person. He did that work. That miracle did occur. And they know that he did it on the Sabbath. And that broke their understanding of the Sabbath, their interpretation and expanded application of the Scriptures. That's all they know. Does it seem like enough to already come up with a verdict? to to already hit the gavel and say, Jesus is guilty, Jesus is a sinner. Do they really have enough to have sure footing in their evaluation? No, they don't. No, they don't. This is totally biased. This is totally them looking for an echo. They're not honest in their curiosity. They've made up their mind, Jesus is wrong. He may be a miracle worker, but he's wrong. He's not of God. He's a sinner. Well, let's look at how it continues, and we'll start to see this blind man who is much more honest in his examination, honest in his investigation, honest in his curiosity. Let me pick up with verse 25. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Okay, let's just stop here. Uh, this man has already said, Jesus is a prophet. Okay, we would applaud that. That's close. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we would say, okay, we need a little bit more than that. Well, now that he says this, I'm not very comfortable with this statement there. I mean, they're asking, is Jesus a sinner? And he's like, wah, well, a sinner, hmm, I, I don't know. No, that's not going to work. That's not the the full understanding of who Jesus is. His sinlessness is is vitally important to understanding the identity of Jesus Christ as portrayed to us in the Scriptures. Jesus can't be a sinner and redeem sinners. Jesus is is perfect, is sinless. He's a sinless sacrifice. That's why he's able to take on our sins and pay our debt, because he has no debt. He's the spotless lamb, the perfect sacrifice. So we shouldn't feel comfortable right now. This guy is in a process. He doesn't have all the answers. He's really curious about Jesus. He believes he's he's significant. He's a prophet. I'm not certain about the sinner part, though. Well, let's see how it progresses. Verse 26. They said to him, What did he do to you? Again, there's that how question. How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I, I have told you already. And you would not listen. We've already done this, guys. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciples, but we are the disciples of Moses. Look at how they kind of get mad there. Now, my guess is the blind man, or the man who was healed, right, as she should now be referred to. My guess is he's being a little sarcastic here. He he probably can tell that these guys don't like Jesus. He already knows that they call him a sinner. And he says, oh, do do you guys want to follow him? I I think he's being sarcastic there. And they respond very emotionally. And they call him a sinner. They will later. But listen to this in verse 29, because we really start to see, again, how their curiosity is not honest. Their investigation has been incredibly biased. They are looking for an echo and not the truth. Look at this, verse 29, and I love how the blind man picks up on this big hole in their argument. Verse 29, We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Did you see that? They just admitted that their position is standing on ignorance. They just said, we don't know where he comes from. What do they mean by that? They're not just talking about location, geography. They're talking about credentials. We don't know this man Jesus. We're not certain of his credentials. We're not aware of his resume. We're not impressed by his past. We don't know him. And look at how the the healed man picks up on this. Verse 30. Now the man answered, Why? This is amazing. This is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from? Yet he opened my eyes? I find this to be incredibly hilarious. The man picks up on it and says, Wait, you've already determined who this man was? He's already guilty? He's already a sinner? But you just told me you don't know anything about him. You don't know where he's from. You don't know his credentials. And yet you can already determine that he's guilty simply because he didn't follow your understanding of the Sabbath. See, the blind man starts to see, or the healed man starts to see, clearly their curiosity isn't honest. Their investigation is completely biased. They're looking for an echo. They're not seeking the truth. Now watch the blind man unpack his reasoning. Work through a process. Calls Jesus a prophet. Then he's not certain if he's a sinner or not. But he knows he performed a miracle. Now watch this man's process. His fair evaluation. His honest curiosity. His search for truth. Look at how he argues. Verse 31. We know that God does not listen to sinners. If anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens. Here's his point. Point number one, God doesn't listen to sinners. This man Jesus can't be a sinner because he's performed this miraculous work. Now this is a good point. I don't think it's an airtight point, but it's a good point. Again, because miracle workers can be misleading. Well, this man is making, I think, a good point. In Isaiah chapter 1, God tells his people, I'm not going to listen to your prayers because of your egregious sins. So I'm going to close my ears to your prayers. So this man saying that God doesn't listen to sinners, okay. He's got a point there. James, the brother of Jesus, in James chapter 5, would say that a righteous man, his prayers have great power. Okay, so this man's line of reasoning is pretty good, this, it has to mean something. Uh, okay, a miracle may not be everything, but it has to be something. And then he uses a second point, which I think is incredibly significant. I don't think the first one is airtight. I think it's something, and I think there's some good evidence there. But his second point, I think, is more convincing that Jesus is the Son of God, that this work is of God. He not only says that Jesus can't be a sinner because he does a sign, but then he says, look how significant the sign is that this Jesus did. Look at verse 32. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. And if this man were not from God, he could, knew, he could do nothing. Nothing. They answered him, You are born and under sin, and you should teach us. And they cast him out. What was his argument? Never, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. What is he saying? The degree of miracle is significant. Not only did Jesus perform this miracle, but he performed a miracle that's never been heard of before. I think this is significant. If we go back even to Moses' experience of battling kind of with the magicians of Pharaoh... It was true that they were able to do supernatural things, but the supernatural things that Moses was able to do, empowered by God, were more significant. They were of greater degree. Even that example I gave you, when when Aaron, the the brother of Moses, throws the staff on the ground, and, and then it turns into a serpent, and the magicians do the same thing. The staff from Aaron's hand swallows up those other serpents. We see this over and over again with Moses is that the miraculous power that God has given him is much more significant than the supernatural power of his opponents. So we see degree is important. And the degree of this miracle is incredibly significant. This blind man is absolutely right. Sorry, this healed man is absolutely right. No one has ever in the history of the biblical record ever healed a man born blind. You can't find one story in the Old Testament, one story in the New Testament apart from Jesus Christ. The closest thing we have, the closest thing we have in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, is the healing of temporary blindness. And Ananias would pray for Saul when he was struck with blindness in Acts chapter 9, and he would be freed from that blindness. But that was a temporary blindness that happened to him when he was on the road to a maze. And then we also have uh, Elisha in the Old Testament. He prays when an army is coming that they would be temporarily blinded. That their sight would be removed from them. And then soon after, he prays for them again and they receive sight. But those are not like what Jesus is doing here. Nobody, nobody has given sight to somebody born blind. This is a unique miracle. Another thing that's significant is not just a unique miracle, it's Jesus's favorite. It's his favorite miracle. Jesus heals more blind people than any other category of ailment that you can think of. This is his favorite miracle to do. What's even more significant in the Old Testament, only God is given that kind of power. It is said that it's God who is the one who controls blindness. We see this in Exodus chapter 4 when God first spoke to Moses. We also see in the Old Testament that God says, when my promised hero comes, when the Messiah comes, it will be an age in which the blind received sight. Something that Israel and all the miracles that they had seen had never seen that. But God says, when Messiah comes, you'll see it. And here we have Jesus doing. This man's investigation Was honest. His curiosity was seeking truth. He wasn't looking for an echo. He had to make some adjustments. He had to learn some new things. Yet the Pharisees fail. Fail to be open to learning. Fail to be open to making an adjustment. And they miss out on Jesus Christ. Curiosity seeks truth, not echoes. Not echoes. Sadly, the Pharisees show us a negative, a a, a bad example of curiosity. They only seek echoes. They seek to just wind up where they started. To not learn, to not adjust. The blind man, on the other hand, the man who was healed, he's a perfect model of good curiosity. It takes some time. It's a process. But he makes the steps, and in the end of John chapter 9, as we'll see next week, He worships Jesus and confesses him as Lord. So what do we do with this passage? What do we learn from this passage? What do we learn from that that big idea, curiosity seeks truth, not echoes? I think this is something very significant for us as followers of Jesus Christ. You see, as followers of Jesus Christ, we may read this passage and, and, and place ourselves in the blind man's shoes, and say perfectly that we, we have arrived at the same conclusion that the blind man has, the same confession that the blind man has. We'll see next week when he confesses Jesus Lord and he worships him, this is where we are at. As followers of Jesus Christ, we believe that Jesus is Lord and we worship him. So, what can we learn from this passage? We've already arrived at the conclusion that the man would come to. I think we can learn something very significant. I think if we place ourselves out of the blind man's shoes and maybe ask ourselves, okay, we've come to his conclusion, but would we be comfortable with his process? Would we be hospitable to his curiosity? Because his process was a little messy. He calls Jesus a prophet, close, Then he's not certain if he's a sinner. Okay, that seems like a step backward. But then he sees Jesus as as a pretty significant character who's done some pretty significant things. Who's done things that only God says he has the power to do. And then he arrives at that conclusion. Are you hospitable to that kind of process? Are you hospitable to that kind of curiosity? Are are, are you comfortable with people's questions? Are you comfortable with people's learning? Are you comfortable with with people's curiosity? Or do you just expect people to arrive at the conclusions right away? I would have to tell you that I'm very concerned. Very concerned with a pattern that I see developing amongst Christians. And that's a pattern that does not value curiosity. It is not hospitable to questions, hospitable to doubts, hospitable to searching. It saddens me that I think what we have, for some reason, been more comfortable with, and I don't want to say it's overwhelming us, but I feel at times it does overwhelm us. I think at times we sadly, favored debate over discussion. And don't get me wrong, I love a debate. I love debates. Uh, I, I've listened to many debates. I, I, I've, I've read books that are structured as debates. One of my favorite podcasts is structured as a weekly debate, and I love to listen to it. But if we really want to have an impact on our friends and family members, I don't think a debate Posture is the best posture to have. This idea of points and counterpoints and all these different things. See, in a debate, it's not personal. It's not relational. It's very confrontational. It's very impersonal. It's very informational. It's more of a chess game than a conversation. And I do not think that's the most persuasive way to present Jesus Christ. And I don't think the Apostle Paul thought it was the most persuasive way either. Let me show you this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Just listen to this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 8. Listen to this letter he's writing to this group of people who he's led to the Lord and look at how he talks about their interaction. Verse 8 says, "So, so being affectionately desirous of you, We were ready to share with you not only the gospel. So he shared the gospel of God. But he says, not only the gospel, but also ourselves. Because you had become so very dear to us. What does that sound like? Does that sound like a debate stage? Does it sound like points and counterpoints? Does it sound like the passing of information? The screaming of conviction? Or does it sound like tears? Sound like empathy, understanding, adjustments, insight, patience, curiosity, vulnerability, relationship. That's what it sounds like to me. And I'm very afraid. Because I feel the moment, the moment of impact that I think is before every church. Every church right now, in in, in this nation, in this world, has an incredible opportunity to speak hope like never before. And if we adopt a posture of debate, I think we're going to be disappointed with our impact. But if we adopt the posture of, hey, I am eager to share the gospel with you. But not only the gospel, but myself with you. To relate to you. To be patient with your curiosity. To take you where you are and slowly walk patient with you, patiently with you, hand in hand to the hope that I have in Jesus Christ. That, I think, will be of great and incredible impact. So my question to you is, how hospitable are you to curiosity? Here's a good test. Do people ask you spiritual questions? Think of the last time somebody has asked you a spiritual question. If you can't think of a time in the last six months or year that somebody has asked you a spiritual question, then you seriously need to evaluate Maybe you are not very hospitable to curiosity because people do not see that welcome in you. If they did, they would ask you questions. They would talk to you about these things. Now, maybe you're watching this and you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. You're curious. Maybe you're like this blind man. You're kind of in a a, a process. I want to encourage you with this. Be honest with your curiosity. Be honest with your curiosity. Uh, don't, don't ruin the investigation before it finds its conclusion. And I, I think you're already doing a great job. You're, you've listened to this message this far, you're engaging with this service. So I think you're doing a great job already. I think your curiosity is very honest. And I just want to encourage you to be careful. Be careful. Be careful to keep that honesty and that integrity still there. Because what you'll find is that if you eliminate something from a possibility, then you'll never think it's the most reasonable thing. If you, if you eliminate something from being a reasonable explanation or a possible explanation, then you'll never see that it's the most reasonable explanation. Let me, let me give you an example. When I was talking to this about, uh, with my, my older kids, just a, a couple... Of years ago, I told them that when we think about belief in God, we need to be good detectives. And a good detective does not eliminate suspects before he sees the evidence. He makes a long list of suspects. Then he evaluates the evidence and comes to the most reasonable explanation. But see, what times I've seen happen when people are are spiritually curious, they, they have some Possibilities that they don't even want to put on the list. Jesus being the Son of God, Jesus raising from the dead, there's no way that's possible. And if you eliminate that suspect or that possible explanation before you ever start the investigation, you'll never see it as the most reasonable explanation. If you eliminate a suspect from the very beginning, no matter the evidence, you won't come to the right conclusion because you've already made up your mind. So my encouragement to you is, is be open. Leave those possibilities there. That Jesus is everything that he said he was. That he's the Son of God, that he is the resurrected one, that he is the one who can forgive you of your sins and give you the hope of eternal life. Keep that possibility in your mind. Be open to that explanation. Examine the evidence. And I think you'll come to that being the most reasonable conclusion. Be honest in your investigation. Be honest in your curiosity. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the love that you shower upon us. Oh, Father, we thank you that you are patient with us. I know my journey wasn't a journey that was done in a moment, but it took time. And there was a very patient person a very patient follower of Jesus Christ who was hospitable to my curiosity who answered my questions who dealt with my doubts who was there in my times of struggle Father I thank you for his patience with me and Father I pray that you would make us a very patient people that I would walk with people who are curious Try to show them how convincing we believe the evidence is. I pray, Father, that you would bring people to us. I pray that we would be very hospitable to curiosity, honest curiosity. I pray that people would ask us spiritual questions. I pray we'd have a posture that would invite those spiritual questions. Father, make us a great people of great impact. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. I want to thank you for joining us. Look forward to seeing you again next Sunday.